Thank you all for being here today. We've got a great crowd today. I appreciate very much your presence. To those of you who may be visiting with us, we're very happy that you made the decision to come and worship with us. I want to thank Justin for his prayer on my behalf. I, I pray also that what I had to uh, say this morning can be helpful to you in some way. I appreciate uh, your prayers as well. Uh, as, as an elder, as a group of elders here, we certainly, at least I selfishly, solicit your continued prayers as, as Justin prayed for us this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty tired, pretty sick and tired of the phrase or the variant of the phrase in these troubled times. I'm done with it. I hate it. I'm ready for it to be over with. I'm ready for things to be back to normal. I want to shake your hand. I want to give you a hug. I don't want to have to decide whether or not I have to wear a mask. I'm done with it. But you know, we don't have the luxury uh, as grown-ups, as Christians, we don't have the luxury of burying our heads in the sand. We don't have the luxury of not talking about things that affect us. And there's no doubt that the circumstances of our world are affecting us and have affected us. A few months ago, we as a congregation, as a group of elders, just as many other congregations did, made the choice to suspend our services for a while. That was not an easy decision to make. Uh, I've been going to church three times a week for 44 years plus. Many of you have been doing it longer. And to not be able to meet with my brothers and sisters was, just wasn't the same. But for me just to say, well, I'm ready for things to go back to normal. We can't make that decision. We have to deal with things. One thing I do think and I'm sure of is that Satan is somewhere in an easy chair with a bucket of popcorn cackling with mad laughter because the human race is tearing itself apart. And I'm afraid brothers and sisters, that if we're not careful, it's going to happen to us in the church as well. And so I've chosen this morning to talk about godly unity. I gave this sermon about five years ago. If it seems familiar to you, I didn't see the need to reinvent the wheel. But at the same time, I hope we can prayerfully consider the Bible this morning and what this is all about. Because I know also another thing that regardless of how we've had to adapt and change and whether those decisions have been good decisions or bad decisions, I know one thing, and that is the mission of the church has not changed. And what we're about is the business of saving souls and keeping the saved. And that cannot and will not change. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we gotta be focused on. Behold how good... And how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together with unity. I want you to just contemplate the truth of this phrase for a moment, if you will. You know, unity is a word that has very powerful connotations. It's something that I think God desires and indeed expects from us. Unity can inspire people to greatness, can allow them to endure great hardship, built into the very name of our nation that we live in, the United States of America. Heh, <laughs> right. But you know, unity, for unity's sake, that's not what God's about. 
I don't think unity is the ultimate goal necessarily. Unity is a byproduct of us doing what we're supposed to be doing and interacting with each other and with God in the way that he expects us to. He certainly doesn't want us to be unified in something that's opposed to his will or his word. But this is a true statement. Whether it's here as a group of, indiv- as a group of Christians, the body of Christ, worshiping together, raising our voices in song together, or whether it's sitting around with a couple of different families after sharing a meal on a front porch, drinking a cup of coffee or having dessert, and just talking about whatever. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I want to take a look this morning at what a godly unity is, and I don't want to spend a lot of time defining unity. We all know what it means, but consider this last point that I had here. It's not a definition I found on the internet or in a dictionary. A whole that is greater than its sum. What does that mean? It means two plus two doesn't equal four. And I'm not talking about common core math or fuzzy math or whatever you want to call it. What I'm talking about here is true godly unity is not additive. It means when you bring a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. When you take three different strands of a material and twine it together and make it one strand, it's not just three times as strong. It's stronger than that. And the unity of the church is not additive. It's multiplicative. I hope I said that right. It's exponential. And especially when you consider the fact that Jesus Christ is a part of that unity, it becomes more than just simply us coming together and what we're capable of. There are two different stories I want to look at in Scripture this morning that deal with unity and how God views it and viewed it in these situations. And we're going to look at the Tower of Babel, and we're going to look at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem and see what the Scriptures has to say about unity and how God feels about that. If you're unfamiliar with the story at the Tower of Babel, we're talking about post-flood and Noah and his family Eight people left on the earth, and they began to repopulate the earth. In Genesis chapter 11, we find the progeny of Noah and his family all gathered together in one place. The scripture says in Genesis 11 verse 1, the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. So this is pretty amazing when you think about it. Now, I doubt there were 7 billion people here like there are today, but still, every single person on the earth spoke the same language. And they were all gathered together in one place, and from all appearances, they were doing pretty good with it. You'd think that'd be a recipe for disaster, but they were pretty united in their purposes. It goes on to say in verse 3, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. They had asphalt for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Isn't this the goal? Isn't this what we want? You know, the United States of America is hardly united like this, like these people were. And this was everybody on the face of the planet, all speaking the same language. They were united in purpose. They had a goal. They had a city. They said, let's do this. Let's not be forgotten. Let's not be scattered. Let's come together and build this monument to our greatness. They were united. Make no mistake. Now, the next passage we're going to read, I want you to read it and pretend you've never read it before and pretend you don't know anything else about the story. 
But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they have all one language and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Taking it out of context by itself, you would look at this and say, God looks down on people, they're united, and he says, hey, these people have come together, they've got a single purpose, and they can do anything they set their mind to. And that's a good thing, right? Well, there's the word but at the beginning of that sentence. Something's not quite right here. He goes on to say in verse seven, come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. God came down and messed everything up, right? God looked down and said, they're all united. I'm gonna break it up. No, no, we can't have this. We can't have people united. Why did he break it up? What was it about their unity that he did not like? You know the answer as well as I do. They weren't united in him. They were united in themselves. I suspect disobedience was involved. Where people are, there's disobedience. But they weren't honoring God with their behavior. They were honoring themselves. They were coming together as a people saying, what can we accomplish instead of what has God accomplished for us or what can God accomplish for us? So therefore, God scatters them, confounds their languages. Up till now, everybody spoke the same language, probably English, right? That's a joke, no. But now everybody's spread apart. You can't understand one another. What does that do? That causes division. God caused, literally caused division among his people when they were already united. Why in the world would he do that? Because they weren't united in him. They weren't united in purpose. So fast forward a few thousand years or a couple thousand or whatever. Jesus Christ comes to this earth. He shows us how to live. He shows us how to love. He goes to the cross and he sheds his blood and he raises from the dead. Now, spends about 40 days with his disciples on the, after his resurrection, and then he ascends to heaven, and he says, you go back to Jerusalem and you wait. And in Acts chapter two, we find out what they're waiting for. It says in Acts chapter two, beginning of verse one, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, then appeared to them divided tongues as a fire to set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Already you can see the similarities and the contrast of what's happening here. As this miraculous event happens on the day of Pentecost, what is happening? Thousands of years ago at Babel, God confounded the language of the people. What's he doing here? He's uniting everyone where they hear the same message, regardless of the language that they understand and speak. It goes on to say in verse five, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Not just a hey, this is being interpreted by someone else. These guys were speaking and everyone heard them in their own language. God did the opposite of what he did at Babel. He brought people together to hear the same message. Now, what's the difference here? The difference is the message. What is the message that's being taught here? 
They heard them speaking their own language. What did they hear? The wonderful works of God. That's what they hear. We're going to go on to talk about that in this next passage here. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them all speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? The Bible says they were confused, but they weren't confused at the message. They were confused at how they were hearing it. How do I understand what these guys are saying when I'm not, I don't understand the language they natively speak, and they can't speak the language I natively understand? But they understood the message, and the message was the wonderful works of God. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. At Tower of Babel, the message was, look at what we've accomplished as people. Yay, people. Look at the monument that we have here for us. Look at what we've done. The message here was the wonderful works of God. It was the gospel. Others mocking said they are full of new wine, but Peter standing up with the 11 raised his voice and said, men of Judea and all who dwell at Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to, to quote from the book of Joel. He goes on to quote some from the book of Psalms and the prophecies of Jesus Christ, how that related to King David and all that. But he concludes his sermon, the first gospel sermon, by saying this in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Notice the contrasting messages. On one end, you've got people saying, hey, look at what we've done. We've come together. We have one purpose. Let's memorialize that. Let's build that into a huge monument to ourselves. And then now you have the message of, you're pretty much worthless. You've killed the Son of God. You haven't accomplished anything except murdering God. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Instead of look at what we've done, it's like, what have I done? Instead of think about what we can do, it's like, what are we going to do? The message is completely changed. The Bible says, Peter went on to say, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He told them what to do. He told them how to solve their problem. United with Jesus Christ in his death. Be buried with him in baptism. Now, notice what the scripture says in verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. What do you call this right here? You call it unity. The church was united. And they were united in Jesus Christ. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple. They were united. But notice this. This is the byproduct, not the goal. When they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter didn't say, y'all need to come together. Y'all need to be united. You need to agree on every single little thing. You need to have the same political views and the same whatever views. And when you do that, then you can all come together and then you can be happy. No, his message was, you need to get right with God. You need to be buried with Jesus Christ in baptism. You need to understand the real mission of the church is to save the lost and keep the saved. And unity in the church was a result of them doing that. Pure and simple. 
God himself participates in our unity by adding us to the church. It isn't just that we decide to come together. It's that God brings us together through the blood of Jesus Christ. What happened at Babel? Well, the people were sure united. There's no doubt about that. But they were disobedient to God. They were exalting themselves, forgetting about God. And so God came down and he confused their languages and he scattered them over the face of the earth. What happened in Acts chapter two at Jerusalem? A scattered people came together. God restored the message, not their languages, but the message that they heard. And God was made known to the people through the person of Christ. And he was exalted. And people were obedient to the gospel. And that caused them to be unified in Jesus Christ. What an amazing story and a contrast in what God expects from his people when it comes to unity. Not unity for unity's sake, but a unity that is a natural byproduct of us coming together through the blood of Jesus Christ and having the same goal and purpose in saving the lost and keeping the saved. So the rest of our time, I wanna take a look at some characteristics of godly unity And I want to think of this not in terms of this is the kind of unity we should strive for. I want to think it more of in terms of a litmus test and think about if our unity exhibits these characteristics, that means we're probably doing the right things. And this is by no means an exhaustive or comprehensive list of characteristics, but I think it's a pretty decent start. And I encourage you to not only think about these things, but study it further in your own life. And maybe you can come up with some other characteristics that I've not thought of. First of all, Godly unity is Christ-centered. It's laser-focused on Jesus Christ. And not meaning that our unity is focused on Christ, but rather we are focused on Christ, and that brings us unity, if that makes any sense. John chapter 17, verse 20 through 21. I do not pray for these alone, Jesus said, but also for those who will believe on me through their word, that they all may be as one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I always find it amazing whenever I come back to this passage of Scripture. Not that I forget about it, but it always seems new to me when I think about it, that Jesus prayed for me personally. He prayed for you personally. Not for these alone, his disciples that were alive at the time, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. That's you and I. That's us. He prayed for me that I would be unified with my brethren. But how did he pray for us to be unified? That you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. See, our unity has got to be Christ-centered or rather the thing that brings us together in unity has to be Christ. It has to be the gospel. Anything else is so much noise. It just doesn't matter. We have to be united in him. And every little disagreement or thing that we can come up with, that can be figured out. Jesus Christ is the center of a true godly unity. Unity is joined by love. And think about this as sort of a a natural progression, if you will, because it starts with Christ. But what brings us together, what truly makes the union, 
and makes it special is our love of Christ and our love for each other. In Colossians chapter three, verse 14, it says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. When you think about the people that you sort of naturally gravitate towards, that's easy for you to talk to and to form relationships with, what is it that makes that happen? It's commonality, right? Things you have in common. Those of you that like, you know, baseball or football or whatever, it's easy for you to talk to someone else uh, who's a football fan or a baseball fan, unless you're like Texas and OU or something like that, right? That might make it hard. I just said that because Brent's in the audience today. Just kidding. You know, it's, it's easy for us to talk to people who have the same interests, right? Y'all want to talk about Star Wars? Come on, we'll talk about it. Let's talk about it. That's cool. What could be more powerful as a bond than our shared love of Christ and our shared love that causes us to love one another because of the love we have for Christ? What could be more powerful than that? You know, when in woodworking, when you glue two pieces of board together, two pieces of wood, there's a bond that happens there. And it's more than just sticking two boards together. It's more than just sticking them together. There's a, a chemical process that happens there. That wood soaks in, or excuse me, the glue soaks into the wood, and there's a chemical change that happens there. And you can break that apart, but when you break it, it's not gonna break at the joint. It breaks somewhere else along the length of the wood. Why? Because that bond is so strong. And brothers and sisters, when you and I are united in our common love for Jesus Christ, and that love that we have for one another because of that, that's a bond that is very, very, very hard to break. And we may endure hard times. We may endure times of conflict, as we'll talk about here in a minute. But at the end of the day, that creates a bond, a bond joined by love. That's a sign of a true godly unity. Number three, I think a true godly unity is shown by our obedience. Acts chapter two, going back to our example, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And in that day, 3,000 souls were added to them and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Shown by obedience. These people were obedient to the gospel. And then what happened? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What does that mean? That means they obeyed the word of God. The apostles were teaching them doctrine or God's word and they were continuing steadfastly in that. That means they were being obedient. And I don't care how much you say we're united in Christ. I don't care how much people say, you know, tout that and say, you know, we have a unity in Christ. You can, actions are louder than words. And you can say you're united in Christ all day long, but what are you doing? Are you being obedient to him? Have you been obedient to the gospel? Are you being obedient to the doctrine? Are you being consistent with God's word in your moral behavior? All of those things show the fact that we're united in Christ and not just words. You know, Truett Wednesday night talked about obedience a little bit. I really like the point that he made about what Christian obedience ought to be. If you weren't here, he talked about how that we obey for many different reasons. Sometimes we obey because we're afraid of getting into trouble and we feel like we have to obey. Sometimes we obey because we think we'll get some kind of reward for it. But a Christian should be obeying because we love Jesus Christ. And so when we're focused on Christ and we have a true love for him that brings us together, we're gonna be obedient to that, not because we feel like we have to or feel like we're gaining something from it, but because that's literally what we want to do because we love him. 
And I think that's a true mark of a godly unity. Godly unity is maintained by patience. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you're called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Guess what? We're all different. We're all not gonna have the same opinions. Things are gonna affect us differently. We're gonna have different ideas and different perspectives. The things that we've experienced in life are gonna bring us to problems and issues that have different perspectives. That's just the way it is. You know, Jesus talked a lot when he was on this earth about service and humility and submission. Look at what he says here. How do we walk worthy of the calling with which we're called? What's one of the ways that we do that? With lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. In short, what he's saying here is sometimes you just gotta put up with other people. and Sometimes you just gotta understand that people come to a problem with a different perspective than you do, and that's okay. Let's be Christians and bear with one another a little bit. Let's understand that not everyone's gonna think the same way I am about something. If we're united in our love for Christ and the teaching of the gospel and the spreading of the gospel, the mission of the church, all this other stuff can be figured out. But when we let little things creep in the cracks and start dividing us, Satan's kicking up the recliner with his bucket of popcorn every single time, I guarantee you. The only one that gets anything out of that is him. And everyone else is a loser. So let's be a little bit long-suffering with each other. Let's bear with one another a little bit and try to understand some perspective. And above all, don't let little things divide us. Let's have a little bit of patience. Godly unity is marked by diversity, not just diversity of opinions, but diversity of talents and abilities and responsibilities and roles. You know, when you think about diversity, that's a pretty big buzzword that the world likes to throw around, isn't it? It's a pretty big hot topic, actually, other than COVID. I think diversity is probably the biggest topic on the, on the table right now. And it's really almost counterintuitive when you think about unity and diversity. Those are two, almost don't feel like they go together. But that, that's what the world kind of intuitively knows, I think, that diversity and unity can go hand in hand. And I think God clearly states that in his word. We read in Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 13, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is he saying here? We've all got different roles to play. We may look at unity as, well, we all gotta think the same things and we all gotta have the same talents and everybody has a share of doing this or that. That's not what diversity is about. Diversity is about the sum of those parts being greater than just the sum. Multiplicative, not additive. It's about us coming together with our own different viewpoints, abilities, talents, traits, personalities, roles and responsibilities. It's about us all coming together and being so much more than we could on our own. But more importantly, till we all come together in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Remember, it's not just about us coming together and pulling our talents and resources and abilities. 
that in and of itself is still multiplicative. But when you, bring, when you bring Jesus Christ into the equation, it becomes exponential. It becomes infinite. And the things we accomplish are not because of what we can do, but because of what he has done. And when we come together in that unity, a unity that's marked by diverse talents and abilities and roles and responsibilities, that's when we know that we've got a godly unity. And finally, a godly unity is glorifying to God. This is another one of those that, at the end of the day, if it doesn't accomplish this, what's the point? Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did the unity at Babel accomplish? Yay, people. That's what it accomplished. And there was nothing to say yay about. God knew that. That's why he confounded their language. They were glorifying themselves. They weren't glorifying him. We know our unity is a true godly unity when it glorifies not me. When, I, when, I, when we come together and we say, we're here today not because of what we've accomplished, but rather what Jesus accomplished, what I could not. And he's brought us together in a way that no one else could. Listen to what he says there. Grant you to be like-minded, not in every little matter of opinion, like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. In other words, our love for Jesus, being laser-focused on the gospel, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Not with one mind and one mouth agree on every little thing. But you're about the business of Jesus Christ, which is saving the lost and keeping the saved. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, there be no visions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 1 and 10. Paul says, I plead with you, brethren. This is what it's all about. It's about the message of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, whatever we believe or think about anything doesn't matter if Jesus Christ is not in it. That's what we should be focused on. And I know we've had hard times, and I know there are hard times ahead probably. There's hard decisions we're gonna make. Somebody's gonna mess up. I'm gonna make decisions that somebody disagrees with and vice versa. That really doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He sits on his throne and he makes intercession toward God before, for me toward God. And he does the same for you. And you and I are united in that common purpose. That's what matters. I don't know where you find yourself in your life today. I don't know if you've ever taken the steps to be obedient to the gospel. That's where godly unity starts. Those that heard his word, those that gladly received his word were baptized. You know, it wasn't just that they heard his word and were like, oh, great, now I gotta be baptized. They gladly received the word. And they continued in that steadfastly. I believe we have that in this congregation. And my message this morning, I hope, has not been one of condemnation, 
but rather admonition and maybe preventative. I don't want to see division creep into this congregation like I've seen it creep into the rest of the world, like I have seen it creep in other places. I believe we have a strong group of Christians here. I believe we have a family that loves each other and cares very deeply for one another. And I hope we can all sort of remind ourselves of that on a daily basis. And we'll get through this thing together. If you need the prayers of this congregation for any reason, if you wish to be buried with Jesus in baptism, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.